Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I am Danielle Tate, the Maternal Medical Director for TIPQC, and today it is my honor to have with us Dr. Connie Graves, who is a maternal fetal medicine specialist in Middle Tennessee, as well as the state project leader for many of our projects, including our hypertension project that we just went into sustainment for recently in this year. Welcome, Dr. Graves. Thank you very much. We're so excited to have you here to really discuss today preeclampsia, which definitely, above everything else, is a much hot topic, is a very hot topic here in not only Tennessee, but the country. And we'll delve into that in just a minute. But first, as a state leader, with all of the maternal concerns that we're seeing here in the state of Tennessee, I know our audience is very familiar, but they may not be familiar with the work and the things that you're seeing in Middle Tennessee. Will you tell us a little bit about your background and your interest in quality improvement and how that has come to evolve into helping the women and the pregnant people in this state? Well, I think that when I started, there was a need. And I tell people that Frank Boehm, who was my mentor at Vanderbilt, said, hey, we need somebody to help run our critical care obstetrical unit. And we know that you like to take care of sick people and you're interested in critical care. Would you be interested in going to the critical care area and training? So I did. And I became one of the first people in the country to have trained in the critical care area in order to be able to take care of our patients. And so as we went along, what I noticed in seeing a number of patients is that there were no really protocols that people used. Often patients, there were different definitions, especially for preeclampsia. Preeclampsia was not recognized by our internal medicine colleague. I never forget once I had a, a patient and she was in a hospital and they said, well, we need to keep her until we dialyze her. And so I was going through the patient's history with the person on the phone and she'd had pulmonary edema and she doesn't need dialysis. She needs delivery. She has preeclampsia. And what they had done is they treated each little component of her preeclampsia, but they never put together the disease process. And that made me really alerted to the fact that we needed to have a better way of taking care of patients. And we also needed to have a more coordinated way where we reached across lines and said, hey, pregnant women, preeclampsia or other diseases in pregnancy don't always present the way the textbook says they're supposed to present. And you need to be aware of these so that when a patient who presents to you, even though you're not typically taking care of pregnant women, you'll recognize the signs and symptoms and refer them on to someone else. So that's kind of where my quality work began. And then the inception of TIPQC was at Dr. Bohm's living room when we decided that we were going to uh, 
try to promote actually vaginal delivery. And then, then that kind of fell off the, again by reducing the number of patients by encouraging VBAC and then moving forward with uh, the beta-methasone project. Oh, well, I will say personally that we are very grateful to have you in the state and the work you've done in the perinatal realm. For you and I as MFMs, preeclampsia is kind of an everyday word for us, but there may be areas just even in our state where it's not quite understood. Would you speak more to just the diagnosis of preeclampsia, especially those acute moments in the hospital or the office where we're suspecting it and how teams could best approach the management or not necessarily the management, but the evaluation and then the management? Absolutely. I think the first thing is that people have to always have a high suspicion for preeclampsia, especially in the setting of high blood pressure. One of the things I want people to know is that preeclampsia actually begins at the very beginning of pregnancy. And the manifestations of preeclampsia are in the last part of pregnancy. And all of our prenatal visits are built around identifying preeclampsia. So when a patient comes to your office, that is the opportune time to think about the disease process and what you're looking for. So one of the first things that we need to look for is weight gain. If you think of preeclampsia like a cardiovascular disease, patients often will gain weight long before they have manifestations of elevated blood pressure. And you'll see this in your patient, she's 28 weeks and she was um, 140 pounds and then two weeks later, she's 155 pounds. Well, no one really gains 15 pounds in two weeks. I always tell my patients, you can try, you can eat all the Oreos that you want this week. And if you don't get sick, you still won't gain 15 pounds. And so that's one of the first manifestations of preeclampsia. And then, of course, looking for proteinuria through urine dip is another manifestation of preeclampsia. And then blood pressure man- monitoring. It's important. I am probably maybe people consider this old school, but I still use it manual cuffs in all my offices. I do not like automated cuffs. I think that they need to be calibrated. Often the calibration is off and you may miss preeclampsia or or hypertension in your patients. So I have medical assistants who take a manual blood pressure when they come in. Patient needs to be seated. She needs to be resting. They don't need to drive in Nashville, Tennessee, almost have two wrecks, get out, run in because they're late. And then you go, oh, let me take your blood pressure because that's probably going to result in an elevated blood pressure. But there's a little trick. Blood pressure, systolic blood pressure is much more dependent on your anxiety, your vessel squeeze, and all these other things. Diastolic is not. Diastolic is a function of cardiac function. So one of the things I tell my office is when their bottom pressure, their diastolic doesn't come down, then you need to pay attention. And this week I've sent two, three, three people to the hospital for preeclampsia. And every single one of them, after I let them sit for a while, they were 140 over 95, 142 over 98, 138 over 90. That diastolic pressure did not come down. And because preeclampsia is a vasospastic disease, which means the pressure can come down and go back up, all of those patients need to be sent to a setting in which they can have serial blood pressures. Both of the people, when I sent them to the setting and they got serial blood pressures, eventually I got acute severe hypertension. So those are some of the ways in your office and when you're evaluating a patient, you can really key in to those factors that may increase that patient's risk of preeclampsia. 
That's such great knowledge to obtain. Um, when you speak to management, I know in pregnancy, we are limited in a lot of ways of managing chronic illness or acute illness. Can you speak more to a great regimen or protocol or just standard to have when managing patients with preeclampsia? Well, I think that management is very much dependent on, on gestational age. So the first thing that I'm a true believer in is if I have a chronic hypertensive, I've always, you know, MF, as you know, in the MFM school, if you ask three, two MFMs a question, you'll get, eight, you'll get eight thoughts about where we should go. But I've always been at the MFM school that you treat blood pressure. So I always have. So if I have somebody who's 18 weeks who has stage two hypertension, I have always treated them. It just didn't make sense to me that your kidney didn't like stage two hypertension and it's a small vessel organ, but somehow your placenta would and it's a small vessel organ. So I've always treated them. And the data is now clear that, that that's the correct thing to do. So if you have a patient with chronic hypertension, you want to treat their stage two hypertension and keep them in that 130 over 80 range. You don't want them running 141. 50 over 90. And that's kind of a change in thought. So that's in, in the office. That's one of the things we need to think about when we're managing blood pressures and patients who are at risk for preeclampsia. And especially our patients who have other vascular diseases, diabetes, lupus. I sent over a patient yesterday who had both. And so you want to think about those things because those are the patients whose vessels may not withstand elevated blood pressure and have an increased risk of stroke, kidney disease, all of those patients who have underlying vasculopathy. Now, in the hospital, once you admit someone, it depends on gestational age. This morning when I went by and around, someone had acute severe hypertension at 34 weeks, and I said they need to be delivered. That's the last thing I said. There's no need to continue that pregnancy. And by ACOG and the SMFM guidelines, delivery is indicated. Otherwise, if that patient is 32 weeks, then you may want to try to give her some blood pressure medicine put her at bed rest, do some careful monitoring and try to get her the 34 weeks. Regardless of whether or not the patient has a diagnosis of gestational hypertension or preeclampsia, then the, at 37 weeks, that's it. Time is over. All of those patients need to go for delivery. And if you look at the data long-term, if you let those patients ride those gestational hypertensives, they will eventually get preeclampsia Hence the recommendations to deliver that these patients no later than 37 weeks in those patients who don't have acute severe hypertension until after 34 to 35 weeks. So can you speak to the treatment of the pre-viable patient with preeclampsia? Because we both know that preeclampsia can start as early as 20 weeks. So the pre-viable preeclampsia, the first thing you need to ascertain is whether or not this is a molar or a partial molar pregnancy. We know that women who have abnormal placentation are more likely to have preeclampsia earlier. So one of the first things I do is when I have a patient who has preeclampsia prior to 20 weeks is I take uh, some time to uh, do a good ultrasound and to make sure that the baby looks to be appropriate and things of that nature. If the placenta or the baby look as if they're abnormal, then I think that that's one of the things we have to count or the counsel the patient regarding. If the patient is not viable, then one has to realize that you can only temporize so, for so long. Preeclampsia is not about blood pressure. Preeclampsia is a multi-system end organ disease. 
which can cause maternal death. And because it can cause maternal death, I think it is very important for us to talk about what that looks like and to offer the patient delivery. Even at the Catholic hospital for which I practice, one of the, our religious directives says when the mother's life is out, when we know that the delivery is being done for medical indications that will save the mother's life, there really is no conflict. So if the patient is 21 weeks, even though her baby won't survive, the delivery is not, we're not terminating the delivery because we just want to terminate the delivery. We're terminating delivery to save the mother's life. And I know that people in Tennessee are kind of gun shy, but I think that they're, you know, all of the OBs will, are, and those of us who practice high-risk obstetrics will rise up in anyone's defense, knowing that preeclampsia kills. And while there are some, some experimental regimens out there, there's a great experimental regimen out of South Africa that I've used a couple of times at 24-ish weeks uh, using metformin, but that needs to be done under protocol it needs to be done by maternal fetal medicine specialists. It needs to be done with consultation and consent of the patient, understanding that this is a protocol that has been proven to be effective in one study, a random one randomized control study, but is not something that everyone is using across the country. Otherwise, delivery is indicated in these patients because if we do not, then often the patient will have long-term consequences, including renal failure requiring dialysis, and in rare occasions, cardiac disease and death. So true. And I do think that is also a great moment to have a multidisciplinary moment of a meeting, a huddle, or a plan, because it, as you said, it's a multi-layered, multifactorial disease. It takes a village of sorts of healthcare providers to treat. One thing that comes up a lot in discussion is postpartum preeclampsia. You know, we're all taught that the cure of all of this is to deliver the baby and mom will immediately get healthy. But we're seeing more and more women return to the hospital in the postpartum period with preeclampsia textbook. Can you speak to what that means as a diagnosis and the best management plan for those patients? Yes. So postpartum preeclampsia there are probably a couple of etiologies. One is that for those of you who don't know, when I talk about critical care, I made my academic career putting little catheters called Swan-Gantz catheters in people's necks and looking at volume status. And what we know about preeclampsia is on day three to five, volume increases significantly, maternal intravascular volume. And so therefore, that is when blood pressure begins to rise. Well, what happens usually on day three to day five, if you're a vaginal delivery, you've already left the hospital. And if you're a C-section, you've already, you're preparing to leave on day three or day four. So we actually may miss that fluid mobilization that occurs. And so, and we may miss the, the high blood pressure. Often those are the patients who come back with hypertension who did not have hypertension before they left. And again, we have to think about what that looks like, because a lot of times when we're talking about readmissions, one of the things we know from our data is that women over 35 are more likely to be readmitted, which makes sense because if I'm mobilizing about two liters and putting it back into my intravascular system, I probably don't have the cardiovascular integrity to handle that volume all at once and more, I'm more likely to have high blood pressure and maybe even pulmonary edema. And then there's the second group of patients with preeclampsia 
who left the hospital with stage two hypertension. And yet again, an opportunity for us to intervene and treat that patient with blood pressure medicine prior to letting her go. And in any event, we know that postpartum preeclampsia causes a significant maternal morbidity and mortality because these patients present to the emergency room. And yet again, like you said, oh, she's delivered. There can't be preeclampsia because the baby's out. And so then they again begin treating these components. I remember once I was outside the hospital and one of my friends who's a cardiologist says, do you know about this patient on, on the sixth floor? I said, no. She goes, well, I'm reading her echo, which is normal, but she has bilateral pulmonary edema and her blood pressure is uh, 160. I thought you might want to know about that. Yeah, that because she has preeclampsia, but they were treating her for pneumonia and her blood pressure didn't bother them because that they don't worry about blood pressure in the 150s and 160s. So it's important, again, for us to talk about those multidisciplinary teams and realize that if your patients go to the main emergency room and you don't have an OBED or your critical care or your medicine people take care of these patients, that they need to be educated on how postpartum preeclampsia presents. Absolutely. Another multidisciplinary moment, because you bring up a great point. The patients aren't always going to represent a triage or the OB side of the hospital, they oftentimes will present in the emergency room or to the other primary care doctors, and it may be missed. So definitely a moment for all of us, TIPQC included, to lead the charge to make sure every touch point where a pregnant woman or a recently pregnant woman presents is well-educated and equipped to handle what may be going on. In the vein of medical management, there is this thought and potentially maybe it's there or not. I just want to get your expertise on it of starting medical management in someone with mild disease or mild preeclampsia gestational hypertension with the thought that it may prevent progression to worsening to get time for the fetus sake to get to full term. Is that something that we may be should entertain more? Is that something that has validity to it? I just wanted to get your thoughts. I actually believe in medical management and starting hypertensive agents, especially in those really early gestational ages that where delivery is not optimal and not something we really want to do. No one wants to deliver a 25 or 26 weeker unless we absolutely have to. So I believe in starting blood pressure medicine and titrating it, but understanding that it's not about the blood pressure. So also monitoring other facets like renal function, and things of that nature, and not getting lost in just treating blood pressure, where I continue to increase the blood pressure medication, even though you know, the patient continues to need more and more blood pressure medication. I think at that point, we have to understand what we're doing to make sure that we don't cause harm. In particular, because preeclampsia is a placental disease, we have to also weigh that with what's going on with the fetus as well. So in a fetus with growth restriction and abnormal Dopplers, dropping the maternal map may not be as favorable for that patient. And so it's a really individualized, but I do believe that there are some patients we can get more time from with appropriate medical management. Those are great pearls, especially when it comes to medical management, which I know was a big part of the severe hypertension project that we just wrapped up in the summer. In addition to all your work with preeclampsia and hypertension, I know your other passion 
is for maternal cardiac conditions, which is such an important topic and oftentimes feels as if this is an extension of a preeclampsia moment during pregnancy. I know you're the leader of our upcoming cardiac conditions and obstetric care project, which we're all excited to get started. Can you tell me more about your interest, your experience with cardiac conditions as it relates to pregnancy? Well, again, like I said, I guess I was in the right place in the right time. And since I was the director of the critical care unit at Vanderbilt, I took care of a number of heart patients, both congenital and acquired cardiac disease. I will say that over time, what I have seen is that congenital heart disease is still there, but we're seeing more and more acquired heart, cardiac disease. And if you look at the data, it is the acquired cardiac disease that is causing maternal morbidity and mortality. 60 to 70% of women with heart disease are not even diagnosed with heart disease in pregnancy because people are short of breath, people have palpitations. And so often we are desensitized to the fact that this are, these are also cardiac symptoms. So being able to screen these patients for acquired, especially acquired cardiac disease is so important. Like I said, you know, if you come in and tell me that you have a repaired tetralogy of Fallot, then voila, I know you have heart disease. But no one comes in and says, well, you know, Dr. Graves, I have all these risk factors. In my family history, I have hypercholesterol. And my father died of a heart attack at 30. No one really comes, to, for the most part, when they're pregnant and, give you, and gives you that history. So that has been a passion of mine because that is a great place to prevent maternal morbidity and mortality. And when you look at disparities, it is particularly African-American women who have an, an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Although we're now seeing some other women, especially our some of our Asian counterparts and the uh, word on the street was Hispanic women weren't affected. Well, I'm beginning to see that that's probably not the case. It's just that we now have a generation of Hispanic women in America that, that we can follow a little bit more actively. So I'm just really excited about educating people about cardiovascular disease and the extension from adverse pregnancy outcomes. I've been working with our team here at, um, at St. Thomas, and uh, we have a joint project with St. Thomas and our group, Tennessee Maternal Fetal Medicine. And we deliver 7,000 babies a year. And they're like, well, we want a women's heart program. And I said, well, you know where your patients are going to come from? They're going to come from your preeclampsia, your intrauterine growth restriction, your gestational diabetes, and other adverse pregnancy outcomes, including stillbirth and preterm labor. And we have not even touched the surface of what we need to learn from these women and what their long-term outcomes and follow-ups will be. We do know that women who have early preeclampsia have, that is prior to 34 weeks, are more likely to have death. And that death starts at as soon as about two, a year and a half out. And so we have a lot of work to do because some of these women develop peripartum cardiomyopathies and, and heart failure. Some of these women have fatal arrhythmias or some of these women have strokes. And so we have a lot of work to do in educating women that we have a marker, thank goodness, for our long-term cardiovascular health, and we need to pay attention to it so we can seek help and get into preventative programs, change our diet, our lifestyle, and really reduce the risk that we will have some of these long-term outcomes. I'll tell you, this is a very exciting topic to say the least, because we often think of heart disease as something that you see in an older population. No one's thinking 
quote unquote, young, healthy, fertile women would have this issue. And now we're seeing it. It sounds like there's a lot of linkage to what happens in pregnancy and there may not be anything else going on in life that occurs to significantly affect her heart. I know that recently the FDA approved a preeclampsia risk assessment tool. And I think you mentioned that earlier. Can you tell us more about that test, what it all involves and how that could potentially impact how we're caring for patients? So this is a test is exciting because we as maternal family medicine specialists know that when someone admits their hypertensive patient to the hospital, the first thing they say is, well, when can she go home? And I always say, well, you know, she's 28 weeks and I don't really like high, high blood pressure at 28 weeks, so she's going to have to stay. So, of course, and at this test will allow us to maybe hone in to that answer a little better and allow us to say, OK, she can stay and she can go. The test is based on two placental proteins or circulating factors. One is a long name, the placental soluble FMS, like tyrosine kinase protein. And we, we call it S-flit, thank goodness, for short. And S-flit is produced by the placenta. And what we do know is that with S-flit, the placenta begins to, to make this a higher level because what it wants to do is it wants to it disrupt your endothelium. I always tell people to think of preeclampsia like the placenta is trying to keep the baby alive at all costs. And so it exerts certain forces on the mother to improve placental perfusion. One is it makes the mother's blood pressure high. Two is it makes the mother's capillaries leaky because then that can allow the hopefully improved perfusion. So that's kind of what S-split does. And then there's a second hormone, placental growth factor, which is a angiogenic hormone, and it's related to vascular endothelial growth factor. And so it's also secreted by the placenta. And so what this test does is it gives you a ratio. And if that ratio is low, then your patient can go home, less than 38. Because the negative predictive value of this particular test at one week for developing preeclampsia is 99%. And at four weeks, 94.3%, which is pretty good. And if your patient has a ratio of greater than 38, then they are more likely to develop preeclampsia within the week and need to stay in the hospital. This test will be administered between 25 and 35 weeks of gestation. So hopefully it will take some of the guesswork out of who gets to go and who gets to stay. And I'm praying will be an adjuvant because often, like I said, I don't like to send home 28-weekers, but, you know, the patient wants to go home. Her doctor wants to make sure that the patient is happy. And so the next thing I know, the patient's going home. And then two days later, the patient comes back. And, and the way I know she's back, because now she has an eclamptic seizure in, in room five, and they're calling for an emergency. So we're hoping that we can avoid those types of things and then be able to separate out those patients with high blood pressure or chronic hypertension, who don't have preeclampsia, who just may have a manifestation of their accelerated high, uh, blood pressure because it's, you know, your systemic vascular resistance begins to go up in the third trimester. And so it's a perfect storm of, is it their blood pressure and they just have chronic hypertension and we need more medications or do they have preeclampsia? And I think that hopefully this test is FDA approved, not widely available yet, but hopefully it will be a game changer for managing patients. 
it definitely sounds that way. And it sounds like something we could do at any touch point, whether it's the office or the triage, labor and delivery. And it sounds like something that we could continue to use as an ongoing assessment. Absolutely. And once you get the reagents, it only takes about 30 minutes to come back. So especially in, I have, I have a few providers who occasionally like to send their patients home from triage because they're, they came in with acute hypertension, but they got labetalol and their blood pressure came down and, and, you know, they're chronic hypertensive and they're already on two meds. And so they're thinking it's their chronic hypertension, but is it really? And so we, those are the things that I think will be very helpful in allowing people to go back home, but also reducing overall hospital costs and allowing us to keep patients in the hospital that really need to stay. That's a great tool. If there are providers listening who would want to find out more information about the risk assessment tool or any other tools there for cardiac assessment, what is the best resource or resources there out there now? So I want to give out to the shout out to the Preeclampsia Foundation. Their website, preeclampsia.org, I think stays up to date on these things. And that's a great place for providers and patients to go and seek information. And of course, you know, they're always... There are other sites for the providers. The NIH has a site that actually is talking, that allows you to kind of look at the test. And some of the information I got today about the negative predictive value came from that particular site. So those are two good sites where providers can go and access the information regarding this test. And you mentioned patients as well. There's patients. And patients, yes. It's with the Preeclampsia Foundation, it has a patient as a section that's much more patient-friendly and less scientific than often what we we would read in an article of sorts. Well, as we bring everything to a close, and I do appreciate appreciate you sharing all of your wisdom with us. I know we're all now invigorated about preeclampsia, about cardiac disease. What are some pearls you could give to all of us about setting up a system that allows us to thoroughly evaluate and manage without missing the mark on treating patients? So it depends on the size of your hospital. But one of the things I think in setting up your system is to make sure your system is multidisciplinary. I'm always talking about that at our hospital. Just today, we had a patient who is sick and they're like, well, she's a pediatric patient. I'm like, she's 15 and she's pregnant. So that's a whole total different. But no one kind of thought that through that pregnant women might be less than 18. And so we have to always be thinking about how what we do as obstetricians and those who deliver maternal fetal medicine care affect the system. So if you have a smaller system, you may want to bring in your support people, your emergency room providers, your internal medicine specialists, and your ICU team who may see these patients, especially in the postpartum period, and then do joint education to make sure that at every touch point, if they're asking the patient, are you pregnant? Have you been pregnant? When did you deliver if you were pregnant? For larger institutions, I think that specialized areas to see patients is important, such as an OBED, because you have so many patients coming in and out. It's hard for, number one, it's hard for patients, the ED, to handle the volume that they have. And so if you have an OBED or a place where your OB patients present, it allows for a little bit better triage in setting up these patients. But again, a multidisciplinary team because patients have chest pain when they have preeclampsia. Patients also have chest pain when they're having a heart attack. 
and patients with preeclampsia can have a heart attack. It's an ischemic. You can get small vessel ischemic disease. So you have to have when you set up your OBED, it needs to be set up so that you have the resources to have rapid response. Should you have something that is a little bit outside of what we normally would manage in the OB realm? Wonderful advice and pearls again, as usual. Any final thoughts as we continue sustainment in our hypertension efforts, as we take on the efforts of cardiac disease and pregnancy? Any final thoughts? I think that I always tell patients, my job is not to deliver your baby. I can probably get most people through a pregnancy. I think we feel as maternal fetal medicine specialists, we can get people through a pregnancy. And that's great. But I don't think that's our job. I think our job really is to make sure that not only that patient gets through her pregnancy, that her offspring also are well counseled about their risk factors so they can start, so she can start with them early, maybe altering their lifestyle habits. And I tell my patients, I want you to be able to go to see your child graduate from high school, your daughter get married, and for you to to be able to visit with your first grandchild. That's really should be our goal. And we should be start looking at pregnancy, not as this isolated life event, but as part of a long-term care path, healthcare path for women, in which preventative care is a part of what we provide as providers. I think in the end, it will not only change the lives of our patients, but it will change the trajectory of our nation because we know that an ounce of provision is really worth a pound of cure. No truer words. Well, I thank you so much, Dr. Graves, for joining us today. I thank you for your leadership across our state and your efforts in improving maternal outcomes for the state of Tennessee. I thank you all for joining us. Please continue to listen in as TIPQC will feature additional podcast with our maternal fetal medicine experts across the state. Join us next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.